Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Bear Market Brief podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and in this series, we'll be exploring politics, economics, and their intersection in Russia, Ukraine, and the post-Soviet space beyond. Joining us for this first episode is Maximilian Hess. Max is the head of political risk analysis out at AKE Group in London. He's a specialist on all things Eurasian politics, and he has a ton to say about credit and debt markets. So listen through. We have a great episode ahead. Max, welcome to the inaugural episode of the Bear Market Brief podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to take part. So let's jump straight in. Um, just want to explain to the audience uh, what you do, your specialty, how you got interested in Russia, Eurasia world, and particularly bonds and debt instruments. Sure. Uh, so I am the head of political risk analysis and also the principal analyst for Europe and Eurasia at a London and Singapore-based consultancy firm called AKE International. I first really got interested in the region when I was in high school, and it just turned out that uh, I sat at the table and, you know, my first lunch day with uh, all the kids from the, the former Soviet Union, um, sat down. I, th I thought they were all New Yorkers, which is where I'm from originally, and uh, sat down, tried to make friends, and they all just went about speaking in Russian to one another. But I sat there through the whole meal, and uh, after that, they sort of invited me to, to hang out with them, and um, it all sort of kicked off from there. And then I went to uh, Georgia not too long after the 2008 uh, Russia-Georgian War because I had a good friend who was from there and uh, sort of became fascinated with that. That was the focus of my undergraduate studies. And then comparing um, Russian influence in the politics and economics of Central Asia and the Caucasus was the focus of my master's degree. And while I was doing my master's degree, I had met my previous boss who used to head the team um, at a conference. And he said, our Russia analyst has left to go work for RAND. We're hiring. I thought you might be good for the position. I interviewed, got the job, and I've been with AKE for um, six years ever since. Wow. Uh, in millennial terms, that's that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a very uh, long time. But, but if, about debt and bonds specifically, this is something I know you like to talk about and something we're going to talk about on this episode. Uh, how did you sure. discover that? Well, so I was always interested. Uh, well, that's actually not true. I was not very interested in financial markets when I was young, um, but it's what everybody else in my family did. Um, so I sort of was brought up having to talk about it a little bit. Um, my sort of real interest began to develop um, as I was doing my master's studies. And I sort of realized that credit markets and how Russian banks were loaning um, in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Georgia, which were the countries of my focus. <laughs> Um, had changed quite a bit under Putin's first two terms. Um, but then my interest really got furthered through working at AKE. So we work closely um, with insurers, um, other financial services companies, people on the credit side um, of, of political risk and um, investing in emerging markets. Our focus is certainly primarily on dealing with people uh, lending money. Um, that's that's our bread and butter, I guess you could say. Uh, so I really, through learning that, it was fascinating to me because London has this whole political risk and trade credit insurance market. 
and banks and financiers and all these people who are dealing uh, with this part of the world, but certainly don't have the same level of um, background as somebody who, who studied this um, in, in university, uh, even for, for a bachelor's degree. For them, it's really something they have to look at as part of a larger portfolio. But dealing with that um, and how fast things were changing in terms of who was loaning to Ukraine in 2014, um, how Russia was being cut off with the sectoral sanctions, which were the first sort of targeted sanctions on debt instruments um, in quite some time. The U.S. had used them as a foreign policy tool in, in many other examples, um, but, but that was the major recent one. So I really became interested in saying, I actually think, you know, we as people who study political science and try to, you know, have views on how the world works, we completely miss discussions around debt markets, um, at least in recent years, certainly in, in the post-Bretton Woods era. I think if you go back and look at earlier analysis, um, particularly of 19th century geopolitics or do dollar diplomacy in Latin America um, back in the 19th century and early 20th century as well. This was this was a huge part of um, how we saw the world develop. And, you know, I generally got interested in, in reading quite a bit more about it. I read more deeply outside of the region as well, including the role of U.S. sanctions on Japan in the lead up to the war, which basically bankrupted um, their foreign trade bank. Uh, and so I really said, you know, there, there really is something to this. And I think that more there, there's almost more to learn from understanding how these markets work and affect politics than there are that politics can directly um, tell those markets. And I think at least coming from a background in political science and, and political studies, we often it's not sort of a two way street, that conversation. Um, often when people come in and, and talk about how politics can affect emerging markets and investment and, and credit in these places, um, you know, people talk about Russia as a realist power or, um, you know, sometimes even, you know, constructivist <laughs> ideas. Um, but but really um, looking at how money works in these markets and how, how that changes, I think, is a directly observable change and, and a quite informative one uh, as well. You don't say. Um, so on this topic, uh, let's dive straight in. So sure, one sure. of the issues I know that you've been tracking and I've been tracking, too, um, is the relationship with Russia and Ukraine and debt restructuring dating back to after uh, the Maidan revolt. Um, if I have my facts straight, and please correct me on this, uh, Ukraine was looking to restructure its debt, got write-offs or haircut. Um, so mm -hmm. a number of foreign investors agreed that Ukraine didn't have to pay the full amount. Um, but Ukraine owed a large sum to Gazprom and Gazprom wouldn't play ball. And I think this is indicative just because it really is political economy at its most, most sure. basic level. Um, so if you could just walk <coughs> our good listeners through uh, what exactly happened, where it stands. I know it's been an arbitration out of Stockholm, at least in part. I know it's touched London. It's kind of become this global um, business and political standoff. So where do we stand and what have you been following? What's what's the latest on this issue? Sure. So, I mean, the, the Gazprom issue now has sort of been settled as a result of the latest Putin-Zelensky uh, talks. Um, but that's only really one angle to the wider story that, that was happening. It, it obviously was a huge, uh, you know, huge factor in the discussions because Gazprom was... was is the main supplier of gas to large parts of Europe. Much of that flows through, or at least has traditionally flown through Ukraine. Um, gas politics have played a huge role in determining, you know, sort of who's in power and who has money uh, in Ukraine as well. Dmitry Firtash and former um, 
Prime Minister Timoshenko are both, you know, known for having made their money through advantageous at times contracts with uh, Russia for gas supply. Timoshenko then obviously was jailed by Yanukovych over the same. But I also really focused on what I thought was quite a novel development. There's there's lots of people who are excellent writing about, um, you know, Russian-Ukrainian gas politics. Agnia Grigas um, is one name that, that jumps to mind. But Russia had also done this very unique loan to Ukraine during the Maidan protests that really was the focus of, of my interests and ended up, um, I wrote a paper for the Foreign Policy Research Institute on it as well, um, which was a, a novel loan in that it came in the form of a euro bond. So a euro bond, although the term is slightly misleading, simply means a, um, not a, a debt incurred by a country not in its local currency and usually in U.S. dollars. Um, so Ukraine to, has issued a number of euro bonds. Russia has as well. It's a standard thing for, for emerging markets to do. Um, it helps establish a yield curve that enables them to borrow uh, in dollars as well. This has been a big part of the story of Uzbekistan. So if I may yeah. break down quickly. So this is Russia essentially lending money to Ukraine. And just for the listeners who may not be familiar with sure. you know, credit markets, so as far as yield curves go, what's kind of vocabulary that they uh, would need to know relevance to, uh, relevance to this specific case and in general to understand uh, what bonds are doing, how they're behaving? Sure. So, so the euro bond, which we just explained, certainly is a key term. The yield curve is essentially a curve of how much it costs you to borrow over a certain amount of time. It usually costs, um, you know, uh, uh, almost always, not all, but you, they call it an inverted yield curve when not, but usually it costs a lot less to borrow money for one day than 10 years. So it might cost you 1% to borrow for one year and 3% to borrow for 10 years. And the more stable your country is seen as and the more economically sound, the cheaper it is to borrow. So Russia gave this loan to Ukraine at quite a low rate compared to where the market rate, these instruments trade. If you have a Bloomberg terminal, um, you know, you can look at their pricing change from day to day. Um, so Russia gave this loan to Ukraine and to the Yanukovych administration at quite a bit below it. But the other two terms that are really key to understand here are official debt, um, and also known sometimes as public debt and private debt. So private debt is what Ukraine borrows from, you know, say an emerging market um, fund here or a, a bank uh, usually, um, whereas official debts are intergovernmental debts. So Ukraine borrowing from Russia or Ukraine borrowing from the International Monetary Fund as part of its bailout program. And what was so unique about this euro bond is uh, that Russia bought from Ukraine um, although they almost certainly worked with the Yanukovych administration um, on how it was put together because it had this uh, set of terms in the legal contract that were very much non-standard. And usually when euro bonds are issued, they use a, a standard um, legal language so as to avoid um, or to try to avoid lawsuits when restructurings do happen. Uh, one other bit that's worth mentioning is is. There is still this debate amongst people about what it really means for a sovereign to go bankrupt. And its local currency is sovereign. So in Grivnia for Ukraine, you know, it can print money essentially as it wants, but it can't do that in dollars. Um, so you, this, this bond was issued in dollars from Russia. But the really unique point about it was that it was an instrument that technically was representative of a intergovernmental loan because it was officially from uh, the Russian government giving money to the Ukrainian government. But because it was using this instrument, which is typically 
the main instrument, if you read about Argentina now and its talks with its creditors, that it's, it's restructuring its debts again. The euro bonds are, almost, are in most cases in emerging markets, the key instrument, or at least have been for the last 30 years um, in, in those negotiations. So what it meant was in addition to, to the terms of the loan, which included things like it couldn't be offset against the Gazprom debt, Russia could force Ukraine to repay if Ukraine's overall debt load went larger. It was, it was rather novel and put together in a way that allowed Russia to potentially influence both Ukraine's ability to restructure its private debts, uh, which it would need to do to, to borrow money again in the future as a result of the economic collapse that the annexation of Crimea and Russian invasion of the Donbass precipitated, um, but also allowed it the ability to mess, um, to, to be involved or at least try to be involved with um, talks around its official creditors. And the particularly important thing here was obviously after the revolution and, and the change in regime in Ukraine, the Ukrainian government attempted to repudiate this bond and say this was debt taken unfairly and Yanukovych stole the money, um, so we shouldn't have to repay it. Now, this, the official status really mattered there because the International Monetary Fund, uh, at least until 2015, had a rule saying that countries that are in default to an official creditor, a member of the International Monetary Fund and the Paris Club, which is a group of, of sovereign nations who come together to discuss restructurings, if they had not paid money back to an official other government or another official creditor, such as the IMF or the World Bank, that they could not get a IMF uh, bailout. Ultimately, And yet Ukraine ultimately did several times. Yes, the IMF changed its rules for Ukraine. And Dmitry Medvedev, at the time the Russian prime minister, referred to this as the opening of Pandora's box. Did it actually open Pandora's box? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a theoretical question. You know, you, it, it has led to the case where, for example, you could have a anti-Western revolution in, say, Colombia, a country traditionally quite friendly with the United States and, and willing to honor its, its American credits. And they could go and say, we're not paying the U.S. government back any money, and we still can get new money from Russia and, say, you know, the Eurasian Development Bank. Or, or the BRICS bank. This, this has not happened yet. There are other political issues that mean it might not happen. Um, but uh, in, in Venezuela, we may see the question at some point in, in the future. But ultimately, I was very critical of the IMF changing its rules there. The IMF says that it was already under consideration and it had nothing to do with this case um, because they're not meant to be a political organization, but I have my suspicions that quite heavy thumbs were placed on the scales. And the U.S. ultimately ended up giving the same amount to Ukraine under the Obama administration, uh, $3 billion in bonds guaranteed by the U.S. government. Um, so there was kind of a, you know, the U.S. came in and basically replaced Russia's role on this. Uh, slightly more complicated, but that's a sort of simple way to, to think about it. Um, the Russians are still trying to get their, their money back. This case is currently, um, it, the Supreme Court has heard it. The hearings were back in December, the British Supreme Court. The bond is written under British law. Um, we don't have a timeline, roughly, on when we can expect the judgment there. But depending on how it rules... The initial court had ruled that Ukraine had to pay Russia back. The second court had ruled there should be a full trial on the merits of the case. And if the Supreme Court orders that as well, it's hard to say if Russia will actively contest that case. It certainly will not want discovery and to reveal information about how this bond was put together. Um, and if Ukraine ultimately were to win not only in the Supreme Court, but then on the appeal, it could potentially set something called an odious debt precedent, which is a 
very important issue for emerging market debt scholars, which is essentially the argument that debts that are odious, that were taken on not for the benefit of the people, but for the benefit of a corrupt regime or its insiders, that those should not have to be honored by the government. That there are many people who've tried to argue for that precedent before. Perhaps the best contemporary writer, in my opinion, is Jeff King, a law professor at UCL here in London. But it has not been set yet. It has this, So the Ukraine case has the potential ultimately to set a precedent along those lines. But whatever kind of precedent it does set, when major rulings like this are handed down, they tend to affect emerging market debt overall. So the most famous case is Argentina with uh, a U.S. judge. The bond there was a dollar bond issued out of the United States who found that a term called peri passu essentially meant that Argentina couldn't treat certain creditors, creditors preferentially and eventually precipitated another the, the most recent Argentine default before the current one about six or seven years ago. Yeah, there's a uh, lot of defaults, aren't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, you know, it's, what if, it's an important case, not just for the two countries, but also for what it means for international credit markets, um, and which affect developing markets all around the world. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so what if what if Russia does win? Uh, is Ukraine able to service? I mean, maybe there's no political will to, but as far as financial, you know, fiscal, economic ability to, to bear that debt burden, that's a lot of extra credit to service all at once. Yeah, so uh, the terms of the bond here are really relevant because Russia could, un under the terms of the debt now, uh, it not only is owed the, the $3 billion plus interest, which Ukraine hasn't been paying since 2015, but if it won, would also get some calculation um, set by the court, um, potentially, of how much interest it was owed for, for the bond not having been repaid over the last a uh, few years. So yes, it, it, it really would put Ukraine in, in, in quite a bit of a pickle and potentially precipitate another restructuring as well. How the US and the IMF would respond is then a political question. One key bit worth noting is the US sovereign bond guarantee program, which was used to give those $3 billion in sovereign guaranteed loans for Ukraine. And it also been used for Jordan uh, under the Obama administration and a few other countries. The Trump administration has effectively suspended that program. Um, there is movement to expand the U.S.'s role as an international lender, as the U.S. government's role as an international lender, um, which is something pre-Trump Republicans have been quite opposed to in, in you know, calling for the elimination of the Export-Import Bank and, the, uh, and OPEC, the U.S. Um, Development Credit and Insurance Corporation. But those have now been merged into something called U.S. IDFC. Um, that is meant that actually has a larger budget. So although that specific program is gone, the Trump administration is not inherently necessarily against more intergovernmental debts, but I doubt it would bail Ukraine out in the situation where Russia really um, tried seriously to escalate things given the current politicized nature of both Russia and Ukraine and US domestic politics. Makes sense. Um, so We've been talking about emerging markets, but let's jump to frontier markets. And one in particular, you recently had a piece in Financial Times Alphaville blog about <laughs> Abkhazia. Uh, speaking sure. of risky credit, I believe you said the interest rates were up to, was it 18-ish percent? Or so, yeah, the, the central bank reports that it pays short-term that sent that short-term dollar deposits earn 18% in Abkhazia, which is a rate that is so good that if you could put money there, um, 
it is so much better than anywhere else that you could get in the world that you know investors would be silly not to now because Abkhazia is a unrecognized breakaway republic, seen as the jour part of Georgia. It's banks entirely under the control of of Russia, with the ruble as the only credit as the only sort of real currency. Abkhaz banks only report two hundred fifty thousand dollars in euro and dollar deposits. Um, although technically these rates, if they were Real, as real as I mean, you know, available to the rest of the world would would be some of the best, um, you know, available right now. Obviously, you'd have to take into consideration Abkhazia's, you know, potential credit rating and other things that it doesn't have um, to to really try to price that. Um, but it, it has th there is no ability for investors to try to access that because it would be illegal under Georgian law, um, and the economy is so heavily under Russia's thumb. But quickly, just to go through the technical technical aspect again. So 18 sure. percent is, of course, good for investors. But what does it tell you about the actual the issuer? Well, I mean, so you usually to, to borrow at 18 percent, you know, you would have Ukraine, you know, you could get short term dollar deposits at that kind of rate in 2015 uh, when the economy was in total crisis. Usually it's a sign um, that. The, the economy is desperate for money. You know, if Venezuela, um, if you look at the effective yield on its debts before there were sanctions, it was well above that. So the more you have to pay to borrow money, the um, usually the worse of a credit you're seen as being. And this is somewhere where I think it's really important to talk about this from a sort of geopolitical power structure. The, the real magic of finance and credit markets is being able to take money and time and almost substitute them, right? So a, a bond is effectively saying, you know, I'll give you all the money I think you can earn over the next 10 years now um, in exchange for myself making a little money over those 10 years. Um, and that's a really powerful, that, that is essentially at the core of, you know, not only the global financial system today, but um, I think really of, of modern capitalist structures across the world, including the, the modern geopolitical power structure. So when people talk about the U.S. dollar, because the U.S. has such an important role in this and do the dollar is the global reserve currency and U.S. interest rates, which Trump complains are too high, um, uh, that really sets these curves everywhere. So Europe, for example, borrows at cheaper rates than the U.S. simply because its central bank rate is lower. Um, but normally you would have to consider other risks like currency risk, political risk. I don't think in my personal view, there are those who think the EU is certainly you know, bound for an end, uh, particularly in this country, Britain. Um, I, I don't think that. But all those things are typically taken into consideration when considering how stable a, a government is to lend to. But because of the U.S. dollar's specific role in the global economy is the instrument of, you know, basically reserve, um, effectively the dollar is gold, I would say, um, gives the U.S. such a unique political power that I think is poorly understood. But back to Abkhazia for a second here. So mm -hmm. the essential brunt of kind of what you're saying here is that it almost, it almost to a certain extent reminds me of Soviet money, that there's this instrument that theoretically exists with these amazing returns, but yet it doesn't actually exist. Yeah. And is, is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the, the Abkhaz sort of claimed this and, and that piece that I had written sort of said, look, if all this really was as they they say it is, um, then, you know, we, we would be thinking about the economy totally differently in Abkhazia. Uh, but, you know, in reality, I sort of describe this all as, as a Potemkin facade 
which the, the Abkhaz Central Bank is just so unlike any other central bank, it's not comparable. And so it doesn't really play the normal role that the central banks play. As I just spoke about, you know, you have central banks setting interest rates. Abkhazia's central bank has not adjusted its interest rate um, once in the last 11 years, although Russia's has fluctuated from 7 to 17% and even higher and back down again now. Um, so it, it, it's it really, the, you know, the, the question is, is why do they have this central bank anyway? And I argued that was, you know, look, if you look at this from the analysis of somebody who looks at central banks and sovereign governments, it's clear this isn't a, a real situation. But as somebody who looks at it from the political angle, I say, look, having your own central bank, even if it doesn't actually do what a normal central bank does, is important for Abkhazia because it allows them to proclaim independence, to say, no, look, we have the institutions of an independent country, um, which obviously the, the Abkhaz want. Um, where, and, and the Russians are happy to support that so long as the central bank isn't actually independent in doing what a central bank does. Um, so it, it, it's really a, a Potemkin institution. So let's let's veer even more postmodern here, because part of your arguable uh, your article rather uh, wasn't just about uh, what credit and the returns available, but also a foray that Abkhazia had into Bitcoin. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. So I mean, this is a common phenomenon in Georgia as well. Um, there's a lot of cryptocurrency mining um, in the area right around the Abkhaz border because of, of a. Um, very unique situation in, in a dam called the Enguri Dam, which is one of the largest um, uh, sort of arch dams uh, in, in the world, built in the Soviet era, and it sits on the dividing line between Georgia and Abkhazia. Um, and it has jointly been operated by them for the, the last you know, 25 years, despite the, the war um, that broadly ended in 1994, and despite there not really being any other form of economic cooperation. Uh, and this is a tr traditionally subsidized energy in Abkhazia and in some of the Georgian border regions. Um, but Bitcoin, um, which was quite popular in part in Abkhazia and got the government talking about it because many people say, oh, Bitcoin will enable sovereignty and will, you know, get you to be able to not have to rely on the global financial system. And, you know, real evangelists say that Bitcoin should replace the dollar. Um, so this was very attractive to the Abkhaz and, and they essentially supported Bitcoin mining at first, but it is so energy intensive that um, it, it effectively caused a crisis for the, the local power grid, which potentially has huge political ramifications, given that, that it is the one example of continued Georgian Abkhaz cooperation is, is this dam. Now, since the beginning of this month, Russia has actually stepped in. And Commerçant, uh, one of the leading Russian business papers, I think estimated at 200 million was the cost. Um, but but Russia is now supplying Abkhazia with emergency electricity to, to make up for it. And the Abkhaz have cracked down on cryptocurrency mining. That is, like I said, uh, really, really postmodern breakaway state yeah. and Bitcoin and facades of independence. Not going to make a value judgment or stance there to avoid offending sure. either Georgians or you know the Abkhaz. Um, but while we're on the topic of Georgia and keeping mm. this, uh, keeping this light, uh, you are a, a big fan of Georgia, I think would be fair to say, um, that is certainly true. tell us about how you, I don't want to say discovered the country because the Georgians certainly yeah. knew it was there, but you were certainly as a Westerner into Georgia before it was cool. I think that's safe to say. Um, yeah, so, so 
Tell us about so, that. So like I said earlier, I my, my best friend in high school, one of my best friends, Georgie, um, is from Tbilisi. And uh, I was fascinated by sort of how little the war in 2008 affected interpersonal relations between my Russian friends and my Georgian friends. And, you know, I didn't have other friends who were, you know, from a country that had just had a war. And so I was fascinated by it. And all my Russian friends were like, oh, no, Max, you really have to go. Like, Georgia's amazing. It's beautiful. They have mountains. They have wine. You know, you'll love it. Um, and I was like, you know, but these people just, you know, their government just invaded. This is so odd. Um, but I went not long after. And, uh, you know, at the time, if you go now to Tbilisi Airport, which has a whole new terminal ever since then, it's packed full of tourists and, and backpackers. But I was really, you know, the only person at the airport. Um, my friends picked me up and they had a Supra that evening, which is a Georgian feast. Um, that they typically throw to honor guests, and they, it went on for 24 hours. Um, I had, you know, an absolutely wonderful time. You know, anywhere if you go as a, you know, 18-ish year old um, for the first time and really have an adventure, I think that you're going to fall in love. Um, but so, you know, from then on, I was like, wow, this place really speaks to me, and have been going back as many times a year um, as I can since. I'm the vice chair of the British Georgian Society. Here in London, we, we you know, help uh, raise funds for charitable projects there, bring over Georgian speakers um, or, or people studying Georgia to, to talk about um, what, whatever it is they're studying. So there's quite an active community here. Um, and, and so I, I stay quite involved even from here as well, but I'm in Georgia as often as I can be every year. And it certainly is a uh, infatuation, is, is fair to say. And for the record, listeners, uh, Max, when I visited Georgia last spring, was instrumental in giving me recommendations. So if you're ever heading that way, uh, would highly recommend you hit him up. Um, Very happy to. Before we go, um, we have a couple sure. minutes left here. Um, we'd be remiss not to talk about what happened in Russia in January and what is still happening with Putin's transition question mark. I think it's safe to say uh, not clear exactly what Putin has in mind. I mean, is it ever clear? But um, yeah. yeah, surprising news. Medvedev theoretically out of power, although on the Security Council, Putin looking to keep uh, his hand in shaping things, although maybe less directly. The Hall maneuver almost reminds me of a Putin-style foreign policy move just done domestically. <laughs> There's you know unclear situation. He's going to do something bold shake up the map, have the theta complete, it's done, um, and can take advantage there. What, what do you think about what's going on? Well, I mean, it, it certainly is quite a headline grabber, and the constitutional changes, I think, are, are going to keep it in the headlines as, as that referendum uh, comes, I think, around May is the plan. Um, I, I mean, I, I've I think the Security Council move is particularly interesting because one thing, you know, a year ago, people were saying, oh, Putin might try to annex Belarus and then be the head of the new union state. And I saw that as overblown. And I said, you know, I think he could simply go and create a Politburo type um, institution, uh, for example, the Security Council. Um, and I think the Security Council is particularly interesting and particularly sort of underanalyzed by by, um, by many because, you know, for example, um, Ivanov, when, when he resigned as Putin's chief of staff a few years ago, a lot of people said, oh, you know, what does this mean? Why is he gone? And I said, oh, look, he's going on to the Security Council and his son has now been named the head of Al Rosa, Russian's, you know, diamond, um, state diamond company. This is not somebody, you know, falling from graces, but potentially moving into a more comfortable retirement. And I think Putin keeps the same, uh, you know, and has kept the same circles around him for the last 
uh, 20 years for, you know, people interested in Karen DeWish's book, Putin's Kleptocracy, I think, you know, really um, demonstrates that very well. Um, Andres Sabato's uh, The New Nobility. Um, and so, you know, I, I see Putin is really essentially, I, I see there as being less change now, you know, um, and sort of under the surface and a lot of cosmetic changes. You know, when I look at Russia, the Ulyukayev case with the former economy minister being jailed um, essentially by Rasnev's uh, CEO, uh, Igor Sechin, Putin's former chief of staff and one of the other very powerful figures in Russia, I saw that as mattering more. Ultimately, I don't think so far we've had a technocrat brought in as prime minister. I don't think Medvedev is, you know, I mean, he might not have as large a role on policy anymore, but in terms of, you know, his friendship with Putin, I don't see being moved to his deputy on the Security Council um, as, as a serious downgrade, regardless of how early it was, you know, telegraphed to him or not. Um, so, you know, I, I really do think the overall story right now is this is a way to make a Security Council that is is more of a outward facing body rather than one you only read about when, you know, I think the last time people really read about the Security Council, at least outside of Russia, was with Crimea when the Security Council actually had to approve Putin, uh, you know, approve the Russia's use of, of um, the military in, in Crimea, uh, despite Russia's obvious, you know, denials at the time that, that it was it was behind the, the quote unquote little green men. Um, so, you know, I don't, Mishustin, the new prime minister, seems to have been brought in as, as an economic manager for me. I think Putin wants to get growth back up to around 3% or higher, real growth, um, before the actual transition comes in 2024. But I don't see this as, so far at least, as a fundamental shaking of, of the power structures. Now, we may see more, you know, there, there just weren't that many of the really influential um, ministers re replaced. Um, that was sort of the signal to me if we saw a huge ministerial reshuffle that we'd get people jockeying for power and advantage. But but so far that has not been the case. Um, I don't think we're gonna get another major reshuffle anytime soon. So I see this really as the first step in a longer term plan of broadly keeping everything the same. So a lot of steps taken uh, to give the, the facade of changes without necessarily changing a whole lot after all. I think you could say that's uh, the theme The theme of today's episode. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, uh, that's all the time we have today. Max, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, stay tuned for next episode. We'll be back. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for our inaugural episode and stay tuned for future editions. I'm your host, Aaron, and while I have you, head on over to the Twitter handle at BearMarketBrief and subscribe to BMB Russia and Ukraine today. Four times a week, we're bringing you the latest on Russia and Ukraine. You shouldn't miss it. BMB is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in Philadelphia. For more information about this and other initiatives, please be sure to visit fpri.org.